0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is where you are. It's Phil here, your friendly brain coach. Welcome to episode two. And this episode is primarily going to be talking about what's coming up in the future and why this channel is better than the other channels, or at least why I believe it is. I've, I haven't heard all of them, but, but this one is going to be different. And different in the main because not only will I be talking about the methods that people use, to recover from anxiety or stop you worrying so much or stop you feeling so stressed or angry or down. It'll also explain why it works from a biological point of view and a psychological point of view. And you might think, well, why does it matter? Why do I need to know why it works? And you need to know why it works because it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep you motivated to do it. So if we're thinking about meditation, for example, I would never have kept meditation up if I didn't know how it worked. If I didn't understand the, the science behind it, the neuroscience behind it, and what's going on in your brain. Because I just wouldn't believe it. I was thinking, how could I possibly sit still for half an hour and that sort my brain out? That stopped me feeling stressed and anxious and worried. How is that possible? I just wouldn't do it. But when, once I found out what happens inside your brain, when, when you do this over long periods consistently, then that gave me the motivation. I'll explain a bit more what I mean. And to help me do this, I'm going to talk to you about a story called "The Finger Is Not the Moon." And this is something the Buddha came out with, and it was in a great book that I read called "Old Paths, White Clouds." And it's an amazing book. It's it's like um, a collaboration of all the different texts out there that documented the Buddha's life, and they've they've collated them all and put them into one tome so that. It's like in, um, in chronological order, so it's like a document of his life. And it's a big, thick book, and it does sort of, it can go over itself in, in periods, but in the whole, it's a really amazing book. And if you're at all interested in Buddhism or the Buddha, I'd definitely recommend it. There's some amazing pieces of wisdom in there, obviously. But there's one, there's one part in there, and it's called The Finger is Not the Moon, and straight away I was like, wow, what a cool expression. I didn't, know, I didn't know what it meant, but it just sounds cool, doesn't it? The finger is not the moon. So what does that mean then? The finger is not the moon. Okay, so the Buddha was starting to teach people at this point in the book and you know, in his life. And he was primarily teaching them about meditation and what we call now mindfulness, which is Well, I won't get into that yet, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. But it's a, it's a type of meditation. And often it's, it involves focusing on the breath. And the Buddhas went well into that, like focus on the breath. So often when people are coming to him, they're suffering, they're saying, I'm worrying about this, or I'm stressed about this. Because people did stress, you know, worry all those years ago. And they'd say, I've heard that you've dedicated your life to relieving suffering and mental suffering. And so just tell me what to do. So he'd explain to them, you need to sit and meditate on the breath or even walk and meditate on the breath. You do do it daily. Do as much as you can. And I'm I'm telling you that will help you. And they were thinking, well, that doesn't sound like it's going to help me. How is that going to solve my problems? And one of them said, look, I understand that you've you spent a lot of time thinking about this and, and, and other people have said that you've really helped them. But I've got a guru around the corner. He's telling me that if I do X, Y and Z, I'm going to appease this God or help out this other person and, and somehow that will come back and, and in some sort of karmic ritual and things will work themselves out. And So I know why that's helping me if the guy around the corner, if I do what he says. So can't you just tell me why I have to focus on my breath and how that's going to help me? And the Buddha says, the finger is not the moon. And uh, <laughs> I imagine one of the guys I said, well, what the hell does that mean? And the Buddha says, if you ask me where the moon is and I point to it, my finger isn't important. If you want to know where the moon is, you just look up at the moon where I pointed and it's there. You don't need to worry about my finger and what's going on with my finger. It's not important. The description or the guidance isn't important. Just do it. Just look. And it's there. And what he's saying is you don't need to know. Why the breath, focusing on the breath and meditating works, and the truth is, he didn't know. I mean, how could he? But he knew it did work because he'd been doing it for years, and he'd been seeing he'd seen it work in others for years. And of course, he was right. You don't need to know. You don't need to know how that works. But okay, so the Buddha was one of the wisest guys that ever. I mean, in the uh, <laughs> in the literal sense, not the American slang "wise guy." You want the wise guy? No, I mean he was one of the wisest people that's ever graced the earth. So I have to admit, like his teachings have helped me a lot. But that doesn't say I agree with every single one of them all of the time. And this is one of those things. And this is why it's called the finger is not the moon, but and the but is because I. Believe, and I know it's the case that if you understand something, and even more so if you have faith in something, this is going to give you the motivation to carry them out and keep you dedicated to what you're doing. And this, and this relates to any tools. I remember like reading about um, Alcoholics Anonymous, and that that used to be a Christian thing. It was it was based on a Christian teachings and. Oh, I'm sure it still is, but although you don't, I imagine you don't have to practice Christianity to go now, but it's, it, it was based in Christianity and, and they did some research on this a while back and they they found out that all the people that had faith in the process in terms of it being a God-driven process. So you're doing this for God. And if you do it for God, you will absolutely 100% succeed because obviously he's not going to let you down, right? if you believe it, if you have faith in it. So you've got these people and they they believe in God and they're doing it for God and they've got faith. And then you've got the rest of the people who just go along because they think it's going to help them and they're doing their best to get over alcoholism. And obviously many of these people were helped by AA. It's a great support system. But what they found was the people who had faith in God or more importantly uh, faith in the process because this is God's will it is God's will that you recover from alcoholism. And these people who had absolute faith had a much, much better rate of recovery. And they found this in other things as well. That, you know, if you, if you, and, and we know that anyway, right? Say you've got an infection and, and someone comes up to you and says, right, this is a pill. And it's going to kill the bacteria. It's got something in there that will kill the bacteria and that infection will go and you'll stop. Weeping from the unseen area. And you say, yes, okay. Uh, I know that that science is sound. And if that's a bacterial infection in my unseen area, I can take these pills. They will kill the bacteria and the weeping will stop. And there's another guy and he says, what you have to do is take this pill. And you say, well, what's that pill? And he says, oh, this pill is, there's nothing in it. But I have cast a spell on it. Okay? So you don't need to worry. Just take the pill. I've said my words. They've gone into the pill. And you eat the pill, you'll be fine. No more weeping, no more pain. Just, yeah, honestly, it works. Just hand them, give me some money. Then you think, why on earth would I do that? And this relates to a problem in medicine known as adherence. Weirdly enough, even when people know it works, and even when it's going to save their lives, they quite often they just don't take it, which is weird. And that's something else we're going to revisit later because there's something about that as well, the the fact that people don't look after themselves as as well as they can look after other people. Like, if someone said to you, right, this guy is going to die... You don't even have to know him. You wouldn't even have to be someone that you care for. If someone said, "If you don't give this guy a pill every day, he's going to die," you would do it. There's no way you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't. You wouldn't have that hanging over you. Even even if it's someone you didn't like, you probably'd still do it. But people don't do it for themselves. It's weird. People don't adhere to the drugs they're given. And like I say, we'll talk about this at the end of the time because it it sort of highlights this this problem that people. Quite often they'll neglect themselves, but they're much better at looking after other people. And obviously this is something, if if you're one of those people, it's something that you might want to look at because you deserve your respect and your care as much as anyone else, at least as much. Anyway, I digress. Back to the original thing, which is the fact that if you have faith in something, you're going to adhere to it more and I mentioned meditation earlier, and this is a perfect example for me because I think that's part of the problem with meditation. There's so much research done into it. There's plenty of statistics out there telling, telling you that it's as effective as antidepressants for depression and anti-anxiety medication for, for people with uh, anxiety. And there's no nasty side effects either. But hardly anyone does it. Hardly anyone meditates for depression and anxiety. Even though they're told it all the time. Because they've they've heard that someone else has, has, has been helped by it. And they've al- they've also they see it on their you know, it's all over the media, but they still don't do it. Because it still feels like pointless. Unless you've done it for a while and then you realise and then you know for yourself, hell, this works. This is amazing. If it makes you feel so much better in so many ways but it's really really difficult to start that I'm going to just explore that now because there are three ways of buying into something and remember we want to buy into something we want to have faith in it and then it'll make us adhere to it at least start it and I touched on the first one there and that's statistics okay so say you want to buy a car and no one does this by the way as far as I can tell but If you want to buy a car and you want to find them, the most sensible thing to do would probably be, say, to find out what the most reliable car is and maybe some other things like miles per gallon and stuff like that. And you can do that by looking at statistics. See, whatever they are, they might be, this car breaks down once every 10,000 miles, 100,000 miles on average. And you can compare them. And we say, right, that's easy. That's the most reliable car. Done. Same with anything to do with medication or mental health. You just say, All right, this medicine or this intervention is the best, so I'm going to do that. But the problem with statistics is and empirical data is it's so cold that humans don't really buy it. They go, they they still logically they buy it. They say, oh yeah, that's probably the best thing. But it doesn't kind of penetrate them emotionally, and that's where a lot of your motor motive. Emoti- well, it's called emotion, right? That's where emotion motivation comes from. There are some people that can buy into something with statistics and cold logic. I mean, we all do to some extent, right? So that's one thing. That's one way you can increase your faith in something and buy into something is statistics, empirical data. This podcast will contain that. What's the other thing? The second thing I mentioned there is, I've heard someone else and they've meditated and it's helped them. So stories. The stories are really powerful, especially if they're loaded with emotional content. So, for example, I've got that car, or I'm going to get that car. That's the, it's the one that's most reliable by a statistic. So I go to a party, and I say to this friend of mine, uh, I'm going to buy this car. I've seen it's got the best reliability and all the statistics. And they say they turn around and say, oh, I've, oh, I know my friend has got one of those. And she said it broke down almost immediately. In fact, her friend's got one as well. And he said, that his breaks down all the time. You don't want to buy that car. It's terrible. He was left on the motorway. Uh, and the hard shoulder, and the raining, it was terrible. And you get this story and you think, hell, I am not buying that car, even though that's the best car to buy, logically. But the stories are powerful. Even though they don't have much scientific validity, they're really powerful, because we're human. So stories are another good way of buying into something. And hopefully the fact that I've done this, and I can tell you that the things I've learned, the things I've done, I've completely transformed the way I think and the way I live and the way I feel, hopefully that's going to give you some faith as well. And you see that on plenty of podcasts. They say, I did this. These are my five tips to beat anxiety or to be happy or to live a stress-free life. But there's a third way. And this this is why I think this podcast is going to be slightly different. And the third way is explaining the theory and the mechanisms behind, behind a practice, let's say. So look, I gave you the example of the pills earlier, and they say, right, the problem with your malady in the unseen area is due to bacteria. And if you take this pill to kill the bacteria, and you'll feel better. So that's what I'm talking about. And if you think about that in the car analogy, if someone could explain to you exactly how an engine works, or at least enough to know how an engine works and why they break down, you could go to a garage and look at all the engines and you would know. You'd, you'd go, okay, right, this one, someone says to you that the, the statistics say that this car is the best in terms of reliability and you flip the bonnet and you look inside and you and compare it to the other ones. And Because you understand how it works, you know. You have complete faith that you're making the right decision because that engine's different to the other ones and it is more reliable and you know exactly why. So what this means is in terms of what we're t- going to be talking about is, I'm going to be explaining evolutionary psychology, other psychological theory, neuroscience, and some basic biology, behind all the things that I, that I think will help you get to where you want to be. Because that's how I changed. I was one of those people who had to know how things work. When I was a kid, I just, I remember, I took a kaleidoscope apart. I, I had to know how it worked. Obviously, I couldn't put it back together again. That's a problem. But it's the same here. Like I couldn't meditate until I knew why. Until I knew why it was going to help me. And once I once I figured that out, it blew my mind. And now I know it's, it's probably the best thing you can do. The easiest way of helping yourself out if you've got suffering. And obviously, I'll be covering meditation in, in some depth later on. But the other cool thing about meditation... If you compare it to drugs, for example, you don't get any of the horrible side effects. There's some awful side effects with anti-anxiety drugs and depress- antidepressants. And you don't get them. And that there's no dependence with meditation. And with meditation, your side effects are more likely to be bouts of euphoria. Or much better relationships. Increased work output. Increased focus. Increased attention. Increases in general happiness. Increased... Compassion and understanding of others. Anyway, like I say, I'll, we'll we'll talk about that another time. It's it's, it's important, but for now, I just let's just focus on the fact that this podcast is going to give you all three of those motivating factors, which are statistics, stories, and theory. And I believe that's why it's going to give you your best chance to change into whatever you want to be, or get close to it, because there's no there is no ideal, right? We don't even know what the ideal of you is. Or the ideal perfect me is. We just got to go towards something that we think could is better than where we are now. Or better than we were yesterday. So hopefully you understand now a little bit about my mission with this podcast. If you'd heard the last episode, which briefly went over my story and how much I've learned, how, how long I've spent learning about this. And now obviously my approach, the three-pronged approach. Number one, stories. Number two, statistics. Number three, theory. Hopefully you'll, you'll tune in next time. and That's when we're going to start getting down into the nitty gritty. And it's not going to be massively, deeply difficult science or, or massively um, complicated. It's going to be quite light. But I'll be talking about something called neural competition, which, which is the way that your brain is ambivalent in its nature. So there, there are tons of networks in your brain and they're all they're all kind of fighting for dominance on, on a weird level. So you might have loads of networks in your brain that are responsible for making you feel calm and then you'll have loads of re- networks in your brain that are responsible for making you feel angry or stressed or on edge. And they're kind of in like a competition, like a seesaw. So that's neural, neural competition. And then we're going to talk about neuroplasticity, which you may have heard of before, and that is basically saying that your networks in your brain are like muscles. So the more you use them, the stronger they get and dominate the, the more they dominate your brain. So if you're angry all the time, if you're angry every day, you're going to use that network more, it's going to come stronger and faster and it's going to dominate your brain. And then we're going to talk about biological preparedness. And that's just introducing you to the fact that we inherited a hair trigger to be wary of certain stimuli. And these aren't always that obvious. So the following episode... We'll be exploring what those are, and that's something I call the dreaded stimuli. But that's it for now, so have a good morning, have a good lunch or afternoon, or even a nice sleep, whatever it is where you are. It's Phil, your friendly brain coach, over and out.